You know, a lot of times uh, we, we see unexpected turns happen in life. We, we actually love it in movies. Uh, I love the movie The Sixth Sense. There's a young boy named Cole who not only can see ghosts, but he, he, talks, to, he talks to dead people. And so they call a psychologist in, uh, Dr. Uh, Malcolm Crow, and they ask him to help this young boy through it. And the movie goes the whole way through, and certainly without me guessing, until the very end we find out that also Dr. Crow is dead and trying to work through his own issues. And, and, and then many of us remember all the Star Wars movie. I love The Empire Strikes Back. The star is Luke Skywalker. And uh, he's being trained by Obi-Wan Kenobi and by Yoda to be able to face the evil villain, Darth Vader. And, and yet at the end of the movie, we, we know that, that Luke Skywalker is adopted. We've never heard anything about his family. In the end of the movie, we find out that guess who is his father? Say it. It's Darth Vader. What a, what a twist. And then in this famous movie that was honored by the Cane Film Festival and just so very popular in this day, Planet of the Apes. Anybody remember that movie? It was not honored by the Cane Film Festival, excuse me. What a movie. There's these three scientists who have themselves frozen and they're, they're, they're sent into space. And, and hundreds of years later, they wake up on a planet and they're on this planet, and, and in this planet, it's the apes that run the planet, and it's the human beings that are put in zoos. One of the scientists finally escapes, and as you're looking around the planet, submerged in water, he finds the Statue of Liberty, and so all along, they've been on the earth. We get riveted by movies that, that certainly at the very end show up something unexpected. And today we come to the end of our unexpected series. Let me just give you a definition. We hadn't done this the whole time. Something unexpected is unforeseen, surprising, causing excitement. And as we've looked through the Gospel of Luke, we've seen that over and over again. My, my friends, Jesus is born to a teenage girl. God's born into this world. God lines up to be baptized like a sinner. God is tempted by Satan. God draws the, the sinners like tax collectors and prostitutes, and he offends the religious people like the Pharisees. And yet he loves everybody from the younger brother who wastes his time in wild living to the older brother who's so critical. And then we see God march through this book, and we see him do the most unexpected things. He heals sick people. He makes blind people able to see. He raises the dead. And finally we see God on the ground beating his fist in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then in the most unexpected point of all of history, we see God on a cross. God dies on a cross. Now, my friends, our problem with this is that we have, we've heard that too many times. It's just sort of something that we say over and over again. You know, we tritely say, God died on the cross for us. But you've got to understand how crazily unexpected this would have to be been to anybody who's never heard it. No one could have thunk of this. I mean, in the first century, we see the disciples, despite the fact Jesus had told them over and over he would die on the cross, they can't even comprehend this. 
It's like watching a movie like The Sixth Sense, and there's, there's clues all along, but you don't see it until the end. That's how the disciples were. The Apostle Paul would later say, this whole cross business is a stumbling block to Jewish people who believe that only a terrible criminal would die on a cross. And it's absolute foolishness to Greek people. And even the early church maintained an embarrassment about the cross. It's not until the fourth century, historically, is the cross accepted as the symbol of Christianity. It's completely unexpected. And yet for you and I, too often, it's expected. It's too familiar. I've heard it over and over again. I've seen it on church steeples and communion wear and even on beautiful jewelry. I look at it every Sunday up above this worship center, and it just is something I take for granted. That's why I'm at times envious of young Christians. There's a young lady normally sits right here, Kelsey Mills, just baptized a couple months ago. And Kelsey has got her first Bible, and she's reading it, and she's so excited. Everything's so fresh. You see, Kelsey believed that Pontius Pilate was a place, and she just discovered it was a person. And so this is so new. I remember a young man in a dorm in uh, Tuscaloosa. His name was Kyle Matter, and we had a Bible study in that dorm. Another young man named Ron Gresham was leading the Bible study, and they're in this Bible study with Kyle. And uh, Ron just offhandedly says, Jesus Christ died for your sins. And Kyle said, what? He said, Jesus died. Jesus died? He had never heard it. And yet it was so fresh to him that that young man became one of the most fired up people I've ever seen and is now a minister. And for some of us, we're at a disadvantage because we've heard it over and over again. And so today, I want to go through the story in Luke, verse by verse. And I want you to look and listen for something maybe you've never heard before. Or be reminded of something that you've forgotten. Or be shocked and amazed by just the whole scene. Now, on the bottom of your message outline, you'll see a big box down there that says, I'm thankful for. There's a cross in that box. So as I go through the message and something hits you that you're thankful for, I invite you just to to write that down and prepare your heart for communion. So let's, let's dive in. Luke chapter 23, verse 26. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country. And they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now understand the The prequel to this, Jesus has been scourged. A scourging was known as a half-death. And so after all this blood loss and all this beating, the trip to Golgotha is the longest, most windy trail they can find. And in the midst of this, Jesus is so weary and broken that he falls down. And so the, the Roman soldiers quickly have this power to call out anybody from the audience. So they call out Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross. Now, this had to be so offensive to Simon. Simon's from Cyrene. He has traveled at least 800 miles to come to the Passover. He's probably a Jewish man that's dreamed of making it to Jerusalem for the Passover all his life. He finally saved enough money, and he's arrived And now the whole scene seems to be destroyed by these Roman soldiers who nobody likes being around, ordering him to do something. And then there's this imposter named Jesus who's blasphemed, at least he believes, the name of God, that he's got to carry his cross. 
And my friend, something happened to Simon of Cyrene. If you read the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 21, you'll find out that his two sons, Alex and Rufus, have become disciples of Jesus. And if you read history, you'll find out that Simon of Cyrene was a leader in the church in Rome. Something happens when you let this hit you. And then look at verse 27. A large number of people followed Jesus, including women who mourned and wailed for him. It was tradition in Jerusalem that if there was a, someone on a, about to be crucified on a cross, that the women would line the streets because there might not be anybody wailing for them. So they're wailing, and Jesus turned, says some almost offensive things. Daughter of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that have never bore, and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and on the hills cover us. What's Jesus saying to these guys? There will come a day where you will wish you were childless. Jesus knows the impending destruction of Jerusalem. And Jesus says something that would be so foreign to any woman. The most embarrassing thing for a woman in this day would be to be childless. And Jesus says, guys, there's a day coming. You're going to wish you were childless because it's so bad. And then Jesus makes a curious statement, verse 31. For the people, if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen if it's dry? That was a first century way of saying If they'll do this, if the Romans will do this to an innocent man, what do you think they'll do to someone who's guilty? And then we go to verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Do you notice the startling brevity of the description of the crucifixion? All we get is four words. They crucified him there. For us, man, we're searching for the medical report of the crucifixion or something that explains to us how awful it is. But for these people who read the Gospel of Luke the first time, nobody has to describe it. They've seen it. They know how horrendous it is. In fact, crucifixion may be the most cruel form of capital punishment ever developed. It was developed by the Greek, and it was perfected by the Romans. It was a cruel place of execution. It was meant to be a deterrent to crime, because if everybody in the city had to see the criminal crucified, who wants to be a criminal? But it was so cruel, because you have these nails through your hands, your wrist actually, and a nail put between your legs down by your feet. And you would struggle to breathe, and so you'd have to push yourself up on this wooden beam. Remember, Jesus' back is already beaten to a bloody pulp. And you'd be on that, and you'd slowly, it was a slow death. It was meant to be excruciating. There are people who did not die on the cross for six or seven days. And many people believe the scourging was meant to speed up Jesus' death. And here's the reason. So the Jewish leaders could be home in time for supper. Because this could go on forever. Well, we keep reading. Verse 34. 
This is probably the most amazing line to me in all of the Bible. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. You see, Luke is the only gospel that mentions this line. How fitting that a caring physician would pin the words that are so healing to all of us. That Jesus, with his back beaten against this wood scraping, with blood coming from his hands and his feet, with spit rolling down his face, excruciating pain through all of his muscles, seeing the very ones who've executed him who think it's just a game, they're gambling over his garment. For him to say, Father, forgive them. Not, not, not Father, <clears throat> kill them, execute them. Father, give them what they deserve. Hell, Father, forgive them. They, they, they're just confused. They're not bad people. They don't really know what they are doing. Verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourselves. The soldiers, the Roman soldiers join in. And there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Now, what's going on there? Pilate is trying to stick it to the Jews. And so he puts this sign. This is the king of the Jews. Pilate could not, he could not stand the Jewish people. So he, he puts the sign up so everybody can read it. It's in Latin, it's in Greek, and it's in Hebrew. Do you, do you, do you see what's happening here? God is being mocked by his creation. If you're really who you say you are and you have the power you say you do, then just come on down, prove it right here. But Jesus had a choice to be made. He could either save himself or he could save us. Thank God he made that choice. One of the criminals who hung there hurled hurled insults at him. In fact, we know from other Gospels, both of the criminals start off hurling insults. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But by this point, the other criminal seen something. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he makes a bold crazy request. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus makes an unbelievable promise. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What happened? My friends, listen. Jesus being crucified between two thieves, in fact, really, the Bible uses a better word than thief. These guys were robbers. That means there was physical force used in what they did. And so it's not the thief on the cross, it's the robber on the cross. These two guys are put up at Golgotha to embarrass Jesus. They're put up to go, even in your death we're going to embarrass you. We want you to die like you're just a common criminal like anybody else. 
But something happened to that one robber. It may have been what Peter said. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. The scene that was meant to humiliate was embraced by Jesus because even on the cross, he's looking for one more. And he finds him. And despite the fact that you and I have to debate about him for the next 2,000 years, this guy is walking in paradise. And then what happens? It gets really dark. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until 3 in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining. Some people say it must have been an eclipse. But in Passover days, it was a full moon, so that would be impossible It's not an eclipse, it's a miracle. You see, the light of the world is being extinguished, and it affects even the earth. Jesus has said in the chapter before this, there will be an hour when darkness reigns, and darkness and Satan are reigning. It appears that all is lost and that Satan has won. It's so dark. And Jesus becomes so blackened with our sins that even his father turns his back on him so that he might never turn his back on us. And then listen to this one hopeful line, and the curtain of the temple was torn into what, what's that saying guys there was this place called the holy of holies where god dwelled there was one guy the high priest who could go there one time a year and they thought it was so dangerous to come in the presence of god that they would tie a rope around his ankle and put bells on the rope so that for some reason the bells stopped ringing they would pull him out because you're not about to go in the presence of god without being struck dead and so matthew tells us that curtain was rent not from the bottom up but from the top down signifying that God did it. And so now the presence of God is not for one person and one day scared to death. It's for every one of us every day in absolute security. Amen, amen. And then listen to verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. Here's something I didn't know until the last couple weeks. This is a prayer. This is a prayer that every Jewish mother would have taught their child to say at bedtime, to God, into your hands I commit my spirit. The only change that Jesus made in the prayer was the addition of this word, Father. What is it in this black, black moment where Jesus has spent three hours in darkness and with sin all over him? He submits himself to his father in innocence and confidence and hope. My, this made an impression. Look at one more verse. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Just think about the guy who first confesses Jesus. He is a, he's a rugged centurion. He, he, he's witnessed hundreds, if not thousands, of crucifixions. It's not the crucifixion that touches his heart. It's Jesus' reaction to his enemies. 
And this rugged centurion says, this guy has got to be the son of God. So what do we find in this amazing scene here? Write, write down some things with me. First of all, we find unexpected forgiveness. I mean, listen to me, guys. Don't, don't go too fast on this one because this statement, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. It's, it, it's the statement that, for my life, it always keeps me close to Jesus. On those days when I'm fed up with myself and fed up with life and fed up with God and I would like to quit, the reason I cannot quit is because I can't get this statement out of my mind. That a God who is so loving can say, forgive them. How do you do that when they've just done this to you? And guys, it allows Christians, guys, you've got to see the uniqueness of Christianity. It allows us to do things that no other religion in the world does. I went to a banquet the other night, Thursday night, called First Choice. It's a, it's a pro-life movement. And it's here in Montgomery, and they, they support people and, and try to talk people out of killing the unborn. It's one of the most convicting things I've been to in a long, long time. But here's what really blew me away and what shocked me, is not only do they counsel people not to have abortions, if someone has had an abortion, they also have counseling for them to get past it. Who else does that but people that are Jesus followers? You think these people were the enemies. They're not the enemies. And then you know the story of a couple years ago when Dylan Roof went to that AME Emmanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and there's a small group of people gathered for Wednesday night prayer meeting, and he almost kills all of them. But the remaining survivors show up at his hearing, and you saw it. They forgive him. Even the world, even the secular world that that doesn't like the Christian had to stand up and notice because nobody, no religion, nobody does that but people who follow a Jesus who says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. I'm so thrilled to tell you that we have the the preacher from that church and one of the ladies who survived that shooting coming to Landmark on a Monday night in May. And we're going to get to hear their story. It's amazing. So there's unexpected forgiveness. There's unexpected salvation. I mean, of, of all things, I mean, this robber, convicted robber, is forgiven. You see, guys, if, if, if you have a debt, if, if, if you've stolen from me, and I decide to forgive your debt, here's what I have to do. I have to carry your debt. I have to pay for your debt. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. We owed God a debt. And the only way for God to forgive that debt was to take that debt and that punishment on himself. And so today, I think even God gets a chuckle out of the fact that there's a convicted robber walking the streets of gold. Amen? And then we've got unexpected love. Listen to me, guys. What motivated Jesus? Why would he do this? He had a choice. Just like his mocker said, he could have come down, but he didn't come down. Because you can doubt a lot of things about God. You can question a lot of things about God. But when you walk away from this cross, if you get it, you cannot question his love. Listen to what Tim Keller writes in his latest book. Jesus Christ is the only founder of a major religion who died in disgrace. Not surrounded by his loving disciples, but abandoned by everybody who he cared about. 
including his father. So God's not going to command you. God's not going to guilt trip you. God's not going to coerce you. He's going to love you to obedience. And then we see unexpected faith. It's the centurion. It's the centurion who watches Jesus die in the midst of this awful scene who thinks to himself, who else could I put faith in that's like this? There's, there's nobody who's ever lived like this. Certainly no one who's ever died like this. So that brings us this morning to, to our choice. Our choice about this scene is either we can live in ingratitude or in thanksgiving. I confess to you it's too easy for us to live in ingratitude because this is no longer unexpected. It's no longer embarrassing. My goodness, many are wearing the cross around their neck and we display it on this stage. It's no longer abhorrent. And so we begin to take it for granted. And it doesn't affect us. It's become routine. And even taking communion is just a routine ritual. God, help us. Because listen to me, my friends. God's gone to a lot of efforts to get your attention. We could walk through the whole Bible, and God's done some crazy stuff. He's spoken through a donkey. He's parted seas. He's healed people. But the final curtain is pulled, and God's last play on your heart and my heart is God dying on a cross. And my friends, if that doesn't lead you to thanksgiving, God doesn't have anything else up his sleeve. Because this cross is meant to punch us in the gut. It's meant to get our attention of how awful and dark sin is, how loving God is, and how sweet salvation is. But sometimes we don't want to deal with it, so we just fly through life. It's like this extremely touching memorial that's been built in our city, the National Lynching Memorial. You know, about two, 300,000 people come to Montgomery to see it, and yet I hear some Montgomerians say, I wish it weren't here. I don't want to deal with it. But it's part of our history. And if you go there, it is so amazingly touching to see those Stones that hang, symbolic of those people who hung in the lynching. And then to see something, see the pictures of the mobs that surrounded those lynchings, dressed in their Sunday best, with their little children beside them, like the circus had come to town. We don't need to forget that. That's how cruel man can be. That's how sinful man can be. And my friends, we cannot forget that Jesus was crucified and surrounding him was a mob.
we might be a little bit shocked if we use different language, if we say Jesus was lynched. God was, God was lynched. But honestly, the word lynching doesn't do it justice because lynching is an awful dark part of our history. But lynching was not near as painful as the cross. On top of the spiritual pain that really was at the cross. And so we've got to be so thankful. Because as you begin this Thanksgiving season, or as you find yourself at the, you know, our Birmingham group at the end of this Thanksgiving season, Man, what, what better to motivate us than just being thankful for the cross? I hope you've been writing some things down while I've been talking. If not, take the time right now. What touches you? What have you learned new? What rivets your heart a little bit? What gets your attention from the, this scene? You, you see, Scripture describes this as the cup that we're about to take is the cup of thanksgiving. Uh, Please remember that communion is not a morbid remembrance of the death of Jesus. It is a thankful memorial for what he's done for us. And so as you rehearse that list on your outline or, or in your mind, what are you most thankful for? If you want this communion right now, and if you're our guest, you'll get up and there are tables scattered throughout the worship center for you to go and take communion or even have a conversation with someone about Jesus. If you want to break the routine, give thanks. We have one more blank on your outline I'd like you to fill, fill out. And there's one more character here that we need to notice because he displayed unexpected courage. He's a man named Joseph. He was a member of the the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jewish people. It's the body that condemned Jesus. Their vote was unanimous, but the Bible tells us Joseph didn't agree with it. So either, it seems to me, Joseph didn't vote or he skipped the proceedings. And after the cross, I think he's embarrassed by his lack of courage. And so now after watching this, he's, he's got the courage to stand up. And so the scripture says, Joseph asked for Jesus' body. He goes and literally takes his body off the cross. He's purchased a tomb near Golgotha, a brand new tomb no one's ever been buried in. And he buries Jesus there. It's, it's as if he's finally saying, I, I, don't, I, I don't care what y'all think anymore. I know I was spineless, but now I can't ignore what this man has done. I don't care what you think. I'm going to follow Jesus. It's a great scene. And my friends, I hope as we talk about the cross today, that we find some unlikely courage. You, some of you, you, you've got to find the courage to stop that sin that plagues you. You've got to find the courage to stop the lukewarmness that dominates your life. You've got to find the courage to, to be baptized and start your life all over. You've got to find the courage to step out on one of these aisles and go, I don't care what anybody thinks. All I know is I love Jesus. I love the story that, that Beth Moore tells. She's, 
She's at a gathering of 30,000 college students in an outdoor venue in, outside of Memphis, Tennessee. And there's 30,000 college students, and they're, they're sort of the bottom of this hill, and a preacher stood up and preached the cross, and now they're, they're just losing themselves in worship. And then off the hill behind them, people begin to notice there are two young men carrying a very heavy cross. They're bent over by the weight. And they make their way all the way down to the stage. And there's a, the hole that's already been dug. And they, they put the cross in that hole with a thud, just like Jesus would have endured. And then Beth Moore said the, the most unexpected thing happened. From the back, from the center, from the front, all these college students just started running. They just ran to the cross. It was totally unscripted. They just, they just ran and they embraced the cross and there was enough of them to lift the cross up and they lift it out of that hole and they began to pass it across the crowd on top of their hands. And Beth Moore writes, these students surrendered their lives to Jesus in the shadow of the cross. And today, I invite you who are about to sing to surrender your life to Jesus in the shadow of the cross. My friends, this is God's final play for your heart. And today, if he's touched you and you're not where you need to be and you need the prayers of the church, or he's touched you and you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus, who cares what anybody else thinks? Like Joseph, walk out of the darkness and into the light of God's love. Do that right now while we stand and sing.